Good morning, my name is Chris Payne. I'm the lead pastor here and very happy to be here as we're continuing in our series. If you're new with us, if you're old with us, if you're medium with us, however you like it, we have been going through the book of John this whole summer, verse by verse, as much as we can, where we couldn't go verse by verse. We have what we call a clcstarter.com, which is our devotional that you can check out on our app or go straight to clcstarter.com. And we have awesome, awesome teachers in our church that are doing a great job of parsing the scripture for us. It's, I know it's my devotion. I, I read it every day and I just love our teachers that are doing a great job with that. So stick with it. Come with us. If you haven't been able, you can catch up on our app and see what all the buzz is about in the book of John. John was one of Jesus's favorite disciples. He called himself the beloved disciple. He called himself that. Um, it was his own identity. And I personally love the book of John. I mean, every since uh, I started following Christ, book of John was the first book I started reading. First book, somebody, you need to read this, read this, because it is explicit about who Jesus is. And that's the question I would pose to you today. Who is Jesus? John would give us definite answer to Jesus was, but the way to know who Jesus is is to find out who Jesus says he is. Many people say different things and have said, and today say things about Jesus, a good teacher, a prophet, a good guy, my homeboy, whatever t-shirt you have. But who does Jesus say he is? And I'm gonna tell you, however you answer that and how he answers that will change the whole course of your whole life. Because once that is answered, if, if he's just a teacher, you're going to listen to a few things he says. If he's a prophet, you're going to go, okay, that's a big, there's a lot of weight there. But if he's God, that changes everything. Because now when he speaks, he's not just speaking his truth. And I have my truth, but he is the truth. I should probably listen up. And see how he acted, who he was. Thus why we've been going through the book of John. In fact, a few years ago, I was on campus with some of our uh, campus leaders doing this thing we called God Test. Where we have 10 questions where we talk to people about God. And like, hey, can, can I do this test with you? Like, okay. And uh, we had you know, clever things, get tested. And all these kind of things, which is good on college campus, by the way. But we asked them, hey, can we, can we do this God Test with you? We asked them these questions. I remember talking to this one guy. And he said, we were asking, you know, what do you believe about God and all these kind of things. And he's like, well, I'm half Christian and half Muslim. And, uh, and we were like, you know, like your dog looks at you like, you know, well, my mom's, you know, Christian and my dad's Muslim. And then he proceeded, we, I proceeded to go to the book of John and, and tell him, you know, John chapter eight, Jesus says he's God. You know, there's a little bit of difference between these religions a lot, actually. And so what are we going to do? And he, was, he proceeded to let me know that I just didn't understand the interpretation of scripture and that he's right. And one day I'll be enlightened. So I was like, okay. Can I pray for you? Um, and so that was how that conversation went. It was interesting. But we do have all of these ideas of who Jesus is. Buddha never claimed to be God. Moses never claimed to be God. Muhammad never claimed to be Allah. Yet Jesus claims to be the true and living God. Buddha simply said, I'm a teacher in search of the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. He said it like that too, I am. 
Confucius said, I never claim to be holy. Jesus said, who convicts me of sin? As we read a few weeks ago, Muhammad said, unless God throws his cloak of mercy over me, I have no hope. Jesus said, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. Jesus was explicit. And if you actually read what he says, you see why he was dangerous to the religious community. But he knew his calling. As we saw last week, he says, no one can take my life. I give it of my own. If you're new, catch up on the series, read through John, check us out. I'll give you a brief overview. We've seen Jesus at a festival. He's been doing ministry, healing the sick, walking on water, feeding 5,000 with a happy meal, doing all of these amazing, amazing things. And the people are coming going, are you the right, are you the Christ? And then he would go into teaching and then they would hate him because of the teaching that he would give because it, it mixed up all of their equilibrium for what religiosity looked like and what their religion looked like. In fact, he healed a blind man on the Sabbath. No, no, Jesus, that's not what we do. We read through that and Jesus is constantly contradicting what they think God is like and yet he himself is saying, I am God. You've missed it. We're looking at John chapter 10, the second part. We went 1 through 21 and talked about the sheep and him being the great shepherd last week. Today we're picking up chapter 10, verse 22. Open your Bible with me as we start. John 10. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Now, let me pause. I, I, don't, I don't have enough time to go into all of this. The Feast of Dedication is not a normal feast, like the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, it's not the same type of feast like Jesus was at before, in the sense that it was a feast that was created by God or established by God in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. For this feast was actually around 200 B.C., 168 B.C., um, and it was a new feast, if you will, and we know it as Hanukkah. Um, Adam Sandler taught us all about Hanukkah on SNL years ago. And so I won't sing the song because we're in church, but it's great. Get your yarmulke. It's time for Hanukkah. So Hanukkah, though, is a Jewish festival, again, around 200 B.C. Um, the Syrian army, it had a, uh, a, a king uh, Antiochus, and his, he, he was pretty benevolent with the Jews, nice to them, and allowed them to have their festivals, have their normal things in Jerusalem, have their temple. But then his son, Antiochus Epiphanes, came in and was not so benevolent. He was hostile. He actually came, brought an army, and they took over the temple. And not only did they take over the temple, they enslaved the Jews, hung some of them, and crucified them, some of the, the, the women with their child wrapped around their neck, killed them. Then he put up a statue of Zeus and forced them to worship the gods that are Greek. And so it was a really big deal. Um, a Jewish priest made, named Mattathias and his five sons, um, which you've heard of the Maccabees, the Talmud, one of the Jewish uh, most central texts, tells of these sons rose up and with Israel came against 
the Syrian army and defeated them. And they were able to defeat them. And then they got all the stuff back in their temple, got all the, the Greek gods, everything that tried to defile the temple. They set up the menorah and the goal was to have it constantly lit, representing the flame of God, the Holy Spirit. And they had this menorah and they put some oil in there. They only had enough oil to last one day and it miraculously lasted eight. And they saw it as a sign of God restoring them and doing a miracle. Then they turned it into a feast, eight-day feast called the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Lights. So that's what's happening in this time. So it is a big time. Imagine you thinking, you're thinking in that time of a revolutionary because not long after that, Rome came and conquered them. So it didn't last long. And, and now they've been waiting for a new Maccabee, a new Moses, a new revolutionary that's going to come and take back over the temple and be the people of God in the earth. That's what's happening in that moment. Jesus was walking in the temple at this time in the colony of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Like if you're the anointed one that's going to bring Israel back and take over so we can have our own land, have our own place, not be oppressed by Rome. Tell us if you're the guy because we've seen all these things you're doing. You, you, you seem ambiguous in some of the things that you're saying. Just be plain with us. We want to know. Jesus answered them, I told you. I've been ex explicit, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Look at my works. I'm healing people, I'm doing these things. This is God among you. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, see, in our culture, we have this idea that we're just all children of God. Everybody is a child of God. Everybody, you know, you're just, you're created in the image of God, yes, but we're all children of God. And Jesus constantly and very explicitly, the past several chapters, has said things like this. You're of your father, the devil. You're not a child of God. The people that are children of God are the people that come through me. I'm the door. I'm the life. I'm the only way. The one, those are my sheep. And he looks at them and they have all of this rhetoric. They've heard him. And this is very offensive because he says, you're not my sheep. As we said a few weeks ago, Jesus is pretty savage. This is the stuff that got him killed. And even in our culture today, when you're that explicit, hey, we're just all one, we're all okay. And Jesus is very explicit, saying, no. See, because fundamentally that's wrong with our theology, with our, with our biblical worldview, that if we're all just okay, why do we even need a Savior? If you just need to get back to your innocence and back to the purity of your childlike stake, and it's everybody else's fault, then why would someone have to die for your sins? See, even in the church, we get really confused. But Jesus is saying, you're not my sheep. Verse 27, he says, like he said last week, as we read the beginning of 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them intimately. I name them, he said last week, and they follow me. See, 
if you are a Christian, the word Christian means little Christ, which means you're doing the things and acting like Jesus. And he says explicitly, if that's you, you're my sheep, you're following me, I'm not following you and asking you, what do you need today? You're following me because you know I love you and I'm a shepherd, I'm going to take care of you. You hear my voice. See, in our day today, to say, well, I heard Jesus say, da, da, da. Some people will say, you're crazy. It's only the word of God. And that's true. The word of God is our source, our foundation to test if what you heard from God is God. But listen, you need to hear from Jesus. The Bible doesn't tell you who to marry. The Bible doesn't tell you what job to pick. The Bible doesn't tell you those things, but when you foundationally know God, he starts speaking to you and he speaks more than you listen, I promise. He is speaking constantly and just crying out. And it's our waywardness, our, 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 our fault, like the sin, God's not going, well, you sin, I don't want to talk to you. It's, that sin blocks us from hearing him. It's a me problem, not a he problem. And Jesus is explicit. My sheep hear my voice. What is God speaking to you? I hope the words that I share in the scripture that we share and the teaching that we have is good. And I hope you walk away and go, man, that was good. I feel fed. But the next step isn't just, pastor, feed me, feed me, feed me, right? At some point, you got to feed yourself because you have a relationship with God. And he is speaking to you according to the word of God and is leading you to be like Jesus. That's the goal. My sheep, hear my voice. What is he saying to you today? What is he rebuking you? The word rebuke means arrest or to stop. What is he saying? Hey, that highway is out. Stop. Quit going that direction. Turn around. Repent. Go this way. Because I dare to say a lot of what he speaks is that, and we don't want to hear it. Right? Like a beach ball in the ocean. We just try to push it down and suppress it, but it just pops right back up. So it's easier if we just dismiss it. But God is saying, I know the plans I have for you. I have good things for you. I want good things for you. Even if it involves suffering at the end, it's going to be for my glory and for your good. Trust me. Listen to my voice. Verse 28. Look what he says explicitly. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is that shepherd talk. No wolf, no bear is going to come and grab them. I can't get them out of my hand. I'm going to take care of them. My father, see how personal he is, who has given them to me is greater than all. We just saying you have no rivals. He's greater than everything and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And then here is his bold proclamation that gets him in so much trouble. I and the father are one. Now, when we hear this, we can hear like we're one, like we're in agreement. Or if you're at a staff meeting and everybody's going, hey, you know, we're just kind of a one accord. We're one. That's not the same kind of one Jesus is talking about. And I dare say... That that's not how they heard it. And I know that for a couple reasons we're about to see. They heard that not as we're in agreement, we're buds, we're pals, we're on the same page, our theology max, me and God. 
But they heard it the way that they know it in their culture because see, the Jews in that culture, every day they're saying this prayer. It's called the Shema. Shema means hear. And it's out of the scripture that says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. You shall love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. They are saying this constant, God is one, God is one. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, they immediately hear him say, you're calling yourself God. Not just like a Moses type character or like a Maccabee type revolutionary. You're stating you are God. How do I know that's how they heard it? Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again, it's not the first time, to stone him. Why did they hear it that way? Because culturally, they know the scripture. They know what these words mean. And they're profound. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? I love this because I'm kind of a sarcastic guy. And I know some people are like, sarcasm is bad. I'm just going to say, Jesus is very sarcastic a lot of times. And that's what he's doing. They're, they're picking up stones. So I'm like, let me find this big one. And he's like, okay, wait, wait, wait. Remind me again. Like healing the sick or that blind dude or like feeding 5,000. Which one of those are you going to kill me for? Which, like, like, okay, let's do this. Let, like, let's have a debate. Let's have a trial. We're in the midst of the court. Explain to me again why you're about to kill me. And here it is. And Jesus doesn't refute it. The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, Jesus doesn't go, wait, 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 that's not what I meant. He continues to have this same dialect. Now, you got to put your big boy hat on, okay, because we're about to get into some scripture and go back and forth between Old Testament in order to make sense of what this, and this is one of my favorite things about going verse by verse is it forces us to do this. So, so get ready. We're going to get a little teachy heavy. Verse 34. This is how Jesus answers that. You claim to be God. He didn't go, oh, look what he says. Is it not written in your law? So the thing you abide by, your scripture, your whole life, everything you've wrapped your life around. That God says this. I said you are God's. Okay, what is Jesus saying? Verse 35, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture can't be broken, this is what your scripture says, do you say of him who the father consecrated and sent into the world, thus me, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? Now, if you don't have... Uh, a, a biblical rhetoric, worldview, understanding really Old Testament and, and kind of the worldview of the scripture, you're going to be really confused. But I want you to understand, Jesus is defending his claim to be God with the Old Testament because this is what they would do. They would go back and forth. They're saying, this is your scripture, right? You don't think it's broken. This is what you use. Let me use that scripture to show you that it's saying exactly what I'm saying should happen is happening. And you missed it. 
You're looking for a manly revolutionary, and it's God that has to come because there's more work that needs to be done than you think. It's more than just trying to defeat the Romans and having your own place. God is trying to restore all nations back into himself, and it's going to take God to do it. Let me show you. Psalm 82 is the psalm that Jesus is referring to, so we have to go to Psalm 82. Before we do that, I'm going to take you to Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9. Because I want to kind of, I got to kind of lay a little bit of groundwork. And I only have, you know, a few minutes left, so this is so hard to do. Um, But I'm going to give you some reference and help as we move forward, okay. Deuteronomy 32 paints the picture of not only do we have the fall of man in Genesis 3, but there are two other falls. There's a spiritual fallout from the spirits, the lowercase g, gods, the spiritual realm. So we are not the only playing field on earth. It's not God up there and man down here. There are spirits and demons and angels and other things happening that the, that the scripture is replete, constant, explicit about, that sometimes in our materialistic view and postmodern Christianity, we just like, well, let's not do that spirit stuff because that's weird. That's our whole life. That's all the Bible. You can't hardly turn to a page without something supernatural happening. So don't do that. And this is the picture Jesus is even painting. And the picture is Genesis 3, fall of man. Genesis 6, you've got a spiritual falling and a fallout. And then Genesis 11, you have the Tower of Babel. And this is where they come together and they're all trying to ultimately say, we don't need you, God, the spirits and man, we got this. And God has to come and he has to divide the earth. And he, in essence, finally divorces man and says, I'm done with you guys. And I'm going to let these other spirits that I've delegated, my staff, to, to just run it. So when you have these other gods of these other cultures, that is an actual real thing biblically. Do you know that? Now, some of you are going, whoa, wait, what? I'll show you. Deuteronomy 32. And the Most High, so the Creator God, gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind. Genesis 11. He divided them all, split them around, different languages. He fixed the borders of the people according to the numbers of the sons of God. That word sons of God is Elohim. That's not a man. Those are spirits. But the Lord portioned his, his, his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. So what happened is Genesis chapter 12, he divides everybody and says, y'all take it. I'm done, with the, I'm done with men. In fact, I'm not going to try to save. I already tried to save man. I destroyed the earth. We started over with Noah. This is where we are. You got it. You run justly, spirits, like a staff meeting. I'm delegating. And my portion, I'm going to take this guy, Abraham. And that's Genesis chapter 12. And I'm going to create out of him my people. That's the story. Psalm 82, verse 1, starts and says this. God has taken his place in the divine council. Imagine like the judge, the CEO, has his staff, and there's a divine council of people, a congregation. In the midst of the gods, lowercase g, he holds judgment. So he's looking and he's calling out and saying, what are you doing, what are you doing, what are you doing? And it says this, God says to them, how long will you judge you gods, lowercase g, spirits, and show partiality to the wicked? You're not judging, you're not doing right. You're not doing the way things, the way things are, should be done the way I wanted them done. You are going astray. You're allowing other, you're allowing these men and these women to worship you and not me. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. In other words, judge right, do what's right. 
They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And here's the scripture Jesus alluded to. I said, you are God's sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. He says, I'm going to judge you and I'm going to have to destroy you because you're not doing right. And then the cry, the plea in the psalm, arise, O God, judge the earth for you shall inherit all the nations. Let me show you a quick video from the Bible Project guys on this word God which in the Hebrew is Elohim. And it's such a great little three-minute video. Check it out when it refers to God and gods. When most people think about the story of the Bible, they think of a story about God and humans. But remember, we learned that there's a whole other cast of characters that appears throughout the Bible and plays a really important role. Right, spiritual beings, angels, demons, and the like. Right, and in the Bible, they inhabit the heavenly realm, which is parallel to our earthly reality and actually overlaps with it. Now, all of these spiritual beings have their own unique characteristics. But here's what's fascinating. The biblical authors have one word that can refer to all the inhabitants of the spiritual realm. In Old Testament Hebrew, the word is Elohim, and in New Testament Greek, it's Theos. But here's the thing. This word gets translated in lots of different ways depending on which being is referred to angels, gods with a lowercase g, or even God with a capital G. Wait, so one word can refer to any of these beings? Yeah, it's because Elohim is a category title. It can designate any spiritual being that belongs to the heavenly realm. Okay, a title, not a name, like the word mom. Yeah, right. The word mom can refer to lots of really different kinds of people, but they all share in common the same role in a family. And then let's say a group of brothers and sisters are talking and one says, hey, it's mom's birthday. They're using the title like it's a name. But it would be clear that they're referring not to any mom, but their mom. Yes, and the same goes for the biblical authors. They called their God Yahweh, which is the name revealed to Moses. But they also sometimes refer to him with the category title Elohim, using it like a name, because they all know who they're referring to. Okay, but don't the biblical authors think that Yahweh's in a class of his own, not like any other? They do, which is why they say things like, Yahweh is the Elohim of Elohim that is, the chief Elohim among all the others. Or they'll say, there's no Elohim beside Yahweh, meaning no other spiritual being compares to him because only he is the ruler and creator of all things. Okay, I'm following, but I thought the Bible taught monotheism, which means there's just one God. Well, the biblical authors are claiming that among all of the spiritual beings out there, only one is the source and creator of all things, including the Elohim. That's biblical monotheism, that one Elohim, Yahweh, is above all other Elohim, that is, the other spiritual beings. Now, with all that said, we are ready to learn more about who these other Elohim are and how they fit into the biblical story. And if you want to know more about that, check out the Bible Project. They have a whole thing on the spiritual realm, especially if you like to geek out on this kind of stuff. But it totally goes straight into Scripture, understanding what Scripture means. Because we cannot throw the baby out with the bathwater because we don't understand it or because we don't want to believe it. And this is why it's so important to understand this and what Jesus is saying. In essence, he's saying to them, listen, I'm claiming to be God. You're thinking about the Christ in the wrong way. And you think it's wrong for me to claim to be God because I just look like a man. But your whole story was leading up to me being God. 
and, and God having to come to restore man, not just make peace here, but make peace in the spiritual realm, in the physical realm, and bring everything back into wholeness. That's what needs to happen, and only Yahweh, God, the creator, can do that. And that's my mission. That's what he's doing. He's not backing down. Let me give you a few verses that share what they mentioned so you can see it in the scripture. Don't just hear it. First, uh, First Kings 8.23 says, O Lord, Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. So they understand. They're not just coming out with something like, it would be like if, if I looked at my wife and said, honey, your beauty far surpasses Spider-Man. You know, that doesn't mean a lot because Spider-Man's not real, right? And so they're not doing that. They're not saying, it's other gods, you're just better. They're saying, no, there are other gods, but you're far different than any of them and far greater of a different kind altogether. Psalm 97, 9 says, for you, O Lord, Yahweh, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. You see, this is in their rhetoric. And Jesus is reminding them, Nehemiah 9, 6, you are the Lord, Yahweh, you alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. So Jesus comes in and he says, I and the Father are one. In other words, I am God, and this is what is ultimately needed. Look at verse 37, 10, John 10, 37. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. So here's what he's saying in essence. I know this is in your scripture. I'm showing you it's in your scripture. And I'm trying to get you to realize you missed this aspect. You're thinking earthly. I'm thinking holistically. And God's thinking this way. He's saying, and even if it's hard for you to understand, I would say today, even if it's hard for you to understand some of these, this is what he's playing to. Because it goes out of your realm of understanding and religiosity. At least look at the things I do. And let that challenge you enough to humble yourself and say, maybe I don't understand everything like I thought I did. That's what he's saying. Look at my works. And I think we could say the same thing. If you don't understand everything about scripture, welcome to the club. That's why we're for eternity going to be going, man, can you believe what it says in Deuteronomy? That's amazing. That's what the Bible says. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God will stand for eternity. You're going to be 10,000 years from now going, man, dude, what Paul wrote, wow, that's amazing. It never gets old and the moment you go, oh, I got that figured out, is the moment you need to check your heart. But what helps you check your heart is seeing the goodness and the good works of God. And being reminded, look what God did. Look at Aisha Darwish over here, what God's done in her life. I can't deny, maybe I'm missing something. This is what he's pleading to, and ultimately his own good works. Verse 39, again. They sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hand. So he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained, and many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. 
the statement, I and the Father are one. The Father is in me and I in him is a statement of divinity. It's a statement of being God. It's not something that's made up by the church many years later. And this is what John is trying to help us understand. John writes more letters. First John 3, 7 through 9, he says this explicitly. Verse 8, actually. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He kind of sums it up. See, because there's more going on than just us needing peace and feeling better and, and people taking care of us and being nice to each other. There is a spiritual realm that has gone rogue as well. And Jesus came to destroy their works Ephesians 6.12, Paul, with this same understanding and mindset, comes in and says these words, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That person, your spouse, your boss is not your real enemy, but against the rulers, against the authorities. And that's not talking about government. It's talking about against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I love Paul not just speaks this, but I believe it's Acts chapter 16. He's walking around and all of a sudden there's this sorcerer lady, fortune teller lady that keeps crying out about him and the, the, and, and the people he's with and saying, he is speaking the word of God and these are men of God and she does it for days. And the problem is she's disrupting him getting into the culture and being a missionary and getting to know people and looking for opportunities to preach because she just keeps yelling and, and doing just like a gnat just in your ear, just won't leave you alone for days. Finally, Paul just looks at her and says, in the name of Jesus, get out. And the demon leaves her and the whole city gets so upset, especially the authority over her because they were using her to fortune tell to to help them to know what to do and where to invest. She lost those powers because now that demon has gone from her. This is in your Bible, by the way, the New Testament. And all of a sudden, all of them are hating on Paul and ready to kill him. Paul didn't say, well, you know, we need to just be nice and walk in love. You should be nice. You should walk in love. That is so powerful. But also, or and with... There is a power that comes with knowing who God is and being in relationship with God that gives you an identity when Jesus says, I am God. Listen, I'm not saying that does not make me God, but now because of what Jesus has done, he brought me back into himself, put his spirit in me where I could hold my head high with confidence and humility and walk around knowing who I am, that I'm a child of God now because I submit to my great shepherd. I am a sheep. I'm not wayward. I want to follow him. And that followship doesn't just make me more loving and more nice and more kind. It also gives me power to defeat the enemy because God is wanting to restore back the nations to himself. As we read earlier, Psalm 82, verse 8. As God has said, you guys have gone rogue. I'm going to judge you. You're going to die like men. And the cry is, arise, Yahweh. Arise, the real God. Resurrect. Judge the earth. For you, God, will inherit all the nations. You know, Abraham 
has been your allotment, your portion. The Jews have been your portion. And it says, but because everything is so chaotic, God, only you can come. And it's gonna take an arrival, an arise, a resurrection of God to come to earth, to judge it. Why? To get all of the nations back, to restore them back. We're part of a movement called Every Nation. We're trying to go to every country with this gospel that, listen, is not just nice and sweet, but it's also powerful because there's real people under real oppression that's even outside of the physical oppression that Jesus wants men and women to stand up and as the first of many to say, I am a child of God, be released in Jesus' name. This changes how you pray. This changes how you commune with God. This changes your whole identity about who you are. This gets you on the court instead of just talking about how bad everybody is. It gets you on the battlefield instead of just being that armchair quarterback that knows everything. It equips you with the gifts of God and the spirit of God because it took God to not just redeem a people, but to redeem all of the nations to himself. Arise, God. It's going to take you. And Jesus is going, this is what scripture is talking about. I'm in the Father. The Father is in me. I have the right to call them children of God. And if they come to me, I'm the door. They then have the right to become children of God. That's you and me. If you've answered the call, if you've submitted your life to Christ and you're following him, listen, he's making you a new person, but he's also giving you a confident humility of power and authority to help others and to destroy the works of the enemy. And this was the message of the disciples and of Paul, of John. Look what Jesus has done. He has no rival. There's no one like him. Everyone's fighting for your soul and for your worship, but there is one that created even those very beings that have gone rogue. He has no rival. No one is like him. And if you call on his name today, he can set you free. He can fight your battles. He can come to your aid, and he wants to. No one can snatch them from me. My sheep hear my voice. And we saw the evidence of those sheep after Jesus died and resurrected. And they were filled with power in Acts chapter 2. Walking around and ministering in authority and in power. The love and the gospel of Jesus. Setting people free. Listen, they're not just special. The only difference between you and them is literally just following Jesus. And if we follow our shepherd, he will lead us into the pasture, not just for your good, but for the whole world as he brings the nations back to himself. Why don't you stay to your feet and we're gonna close. We're gonna sing this song again. What a beautiful name it is. And when we get to that bridge, you have no rivals. If you're in here, and you need God to move. You need to remind yourself and speak out to God. You are greater, God, than anything that is trying to come against me.
You are my shepherd and you are greater than any wolf or bear or lion or thief or robber. You are my protector. You have no rivals. And I believe when you cry that out, that God comes to your aid. And even today, God's gonna set you free for some things. That's my prayer. Let's worship. Father, you have no rival. What a beautiful name, Jesus' name.